Well, good morning. My name is Shaler. I'm the youth pastor here, and uh, I'm speaking this morning. I was supposed to, I was supposed to speak last week, but uh, I got a little sick with just bronchitis, and so I, I talked to my dad and. I said, why don't you have Marty speak, because Marty comes up with sermons before she butters her toast in the morning, and just, there's a sermon, swipe, there's another sermon, and some of us have to sit around for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to figure out what we want to say. So um, he then, this got me, he stepped in, he didn't even ask Marty, he's like, no, no, son, I will speak for you. I know you're sick. And then I'll get up and speak and talk about servant leadership. You're just like, golly. I do think that he offered so graciously to jump in there and speak and take it off my plate because he wanted me to sweat for another week. And now it's my turn to make him sweat. You guys know I like to start off with a little story about my parents. I'm running out of the ones that are appropriate to tell in church. There's a time that they went to Vegas. I can't tell that one. But so a couple weeks ago, we went on a we went on a family vacation. And I stopped going on family vacations when I was 15 years old. Because on our family vacations, something always happens. My dad, one time when I was five years old, ripped his shorts on the slide and embarrassed us at the pool in Hawaii. My parents wreck rental cars. My sister throws up in taxi cabs or on the subway. We have never been through a smooth family vacation where something didn't happen. By the time I turned 15, I was like, I'm done with this. But... I now have a daughter, which, by the way, she's at home this morning, and if she's watching online, I'd just like to say hi to Soren and just let you know that Daddy loves you. So, oh, man, I'm going to start crying. So uh, I have a daughter, and I'm like, you know, maybe it's time to try the old family vacation again. So we go to Florida. We spend a few days in Orlando, drag my parents around the theme parks. And if you guys know me, um, I love Jesus. And then second in my life is theme parks. So that was an adventure for them. And then we go to Naples, Florida. And my sister flies in and spends a few days with us kind of at the last minute. And that actually went smooth. If you know my sister, that's a miracle. We didn't get in a fight. I don't know how that happened. but So you're sitting there thinking, man. We had a normal family vacation. Well, it finally came time to leave. And we just couldn't escape without a little incident. So we get in the car, I rented a car, and we start driving to the airport. <laughs> oh, oh no. So we start driving to the airport, and you know we're packed in there because my parents overpack on trips. So we had it all crammed in there. It was miserable. We're driving to the airport. <laughs> Can I help you? Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. no.
you don't know how this story is going to end. <laughs> so we get in the car. We're on our way to the airport. My mom opens up her purse, and she says, Dan, I don't have my driver's license. But, you know, you have to have a driver's license or some form of identification to get on the airport or to get through security at the airport. So my dad's like, well, check your bags, you know, make sure you check your other bag and, you know, just go through it. You need to be organized like me because I always know where everything is. <laughs> so she goes through all her bags. Of course, you can't move in the back seat because we're packed like the hillbillies. And she's going through all her stuff. Dan, seriously, I don't have my driver's license. And it, he comes to realize she doesn't actually have it. Now, <clears throat> let me just take a time out here real quick. I've had many people ask me what it's like to work with your father. And there are things that are challenging about it for sure. But I can tell you that one of the benefits to working with a family member, particularly your own father, is I know how to read him. And I see other staff members, and I'm not picking on anybody, so you guys can relax. But I see other staff members misinterpret what my dad is thinking. But I, I don't really misinterpret it. For example, um, there are many people that think, my, oh, I, I crossed Dan, I think he's really angry because my dad has a tendency to get extremely animated and he gets worked up and he starts talking real loud and he starts waving his arms around and he gets passionate about what he's talking about. And they, they interpret that as him being angry. And I'm like, no, 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 he wasn't angry. But in this car, <laughs> on the way to the airport in Naples, he was angry. You want to know how you know when he's angry? I'll tell you. It's not when he gets louder, it's when he gets quieter. So he gets quiet, and then when he gets quiet and he gets angry, he tucks his chin into his neck and sets his head back like that, and he starts blinking a lot. So he's sitting in the front seat, chin tucked into neck, eyes going fluttering like crazy. You can see the steam coming out of his ears, and he's not saying a word. He's mumbling under his breath, I'm so mad at her. I'm just so mad at her. How could she lose her driver's license? This is ridiculous. He's quiet, not loud. So when he's loud, it means he probably is happy with you. When he's quiet, you need to be nervous. So we go a little bit further along, and I'm, you know, I'm just trying to play peacemaker in the whole thing. And so I'm sitting up there trying to problem... <laughs> Trying to problem solve, figure this thing out. I do have a sermon, by the way. Don't you worry. Um, I'll get to it. I'm trying to play peacemaker. And uh, so I'm like, well, how are we going to solve this problem? I guess that means we're just going to get on the plane, you know, the three of us, my wife, my daughter, my dad, we'll get on the plane, and then we will ship you your passport because we don't know where your driver's license is. So let's start working on getting you a room. And my mom's like, my mom says, well... Can it be down on Fifth Avenue close to the shops? <laughs> that was not the thing to say to my dad, who's already mad, because translation, if you're a man, she's going to spend more money. <laughs> so we get to the airport. Now here's where the story gets interesting. 
my dad starts, well, let me just go through my stuff to see, make sure, you know, I'm really organized. I put everything in its proper place. So let's see what I have. And he starts going through and he discovers he has his global entry card, which global entry is a, a, a program that lets you expedite through immigration when you get back to the, to the United States and it's a card. So it's a, it's a legal form of identification. Not only does he have his global entry card, he has my mom's global entry card. So, he wells up with self-righteousness. <laughs> the pride starts coming out of his mouth, and he says, well, look at me. I'm just here to save the day. I'm the only one that's ever prepared in this family. I always have a backup plan. And you, Becky, are lucky that you're going to get, you're going to, get to go home tonight. And if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have this happen. So he gets completely full of himself while he's still angry at my mother. We get on the plane. We don't let him sit next, next to each other. And then we get home. And as we get home, we find my mom's driver's license in my dad's bag. So he had it the entire time. So he goes from being completely full of self-righteousness and pride to eating the biggest piece of humble pie I've ever seen. And it was wonderful. Are you done now? I'm done. <laughs> All right. I have some scriptures that I would like to read. It is Mark chapter 14, verse 22 through 31. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them, truly, I want you to pay attention to that, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But, I have but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Heavenly Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing to you. And I pray that you will bless the reading of your holy and precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you were paying attention, there were two statements uh, or excuse me, one statement that he said twice, and it was truly, I tell you. 
These are known as amen statements. And so um, <clears throat> when you see them, it is the Hebrew word amen, and it's kind of, kind of tough to translate. So sometimes when you translate it, it is truly, truly, or truly I tell you, or verily, verily, if you want to go back really far. And typically when we say amen, we're saying it at the end of something. <clears throat> but these two statements where Jesus says, truly I tell you, he's saying them at the beginning of something. They are very important. It is a solemn, Jesus is saying something very solemn, and I think that they're worth us taking a closer look at and paying attention to because I think there's something that we can pull from it. I do find it interesting that these two statements are one right after the other, so I do kind of want to look at them together. We'll go through, you know, the first one and the second one, but I do, I do want to put them together because I think that that matters. So when Jesus said, truly, I tell you, it's a really big deal. We need to pay attention to what comes after that and give it a second look. It's important. So the first statement in verse 25, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Excuse me, I'm still kind of getting over being sick. So I, you know, I've looked at this statement many times and I've, I've really kind of contemplated what it thought, what, what it meant. And I'm not saying that I know all the meanings of it, but I, I do, I, I want to take a stab at it th- this morning. Because when I look at the statement, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So when he says, I will not drink it again until I do it with you, I've wondered what that meant. And what I noticed is that it's, it's vow language, it's, it's promise language, so um, there's several places where this is in the Bible. If you look at Acts 23, there's a group of men, they vowed not to eat or drink until they had killed the Apostle Paul. And then, of course, you know, that <clears throat> worked out. Well, it's another sermon for another day. But when you vow, because it seems like dramatic language, you know, it's like I really promise I'm, I, this means so much to me, I'm not even going to eat or drink until I have it done. When you vow to not eat or drink until... You accomplish your goal. This is putting the highest possible priority on that goal. You're saying, this goal is so, so important to me that I'm not even going to stop to take a meal because this is of utmost importance. So that kind of language means it is utterly the highest priority in my life. Not going to eat or drink until I accomplish this. Nothing is more important to that than me. Uh, Matthew's account gives slightly more detail. He says, uh, it's funny when you talk about Matthew, he's always a little bit more long-winded. Mark's very short-winded. I like to hang out with Mark. I'm a short-winded speaker. Matthew's like my dad. He's a long-winded speaker. He can just go on and on and on and on. So he goes a little bit further. He says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine From now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he's talking about the Messianic banquet. He's talking about the Messianic feast at the end of time. So I I kind of made a little outline for myself. And 
what I'm saying is this is how much Jesus is committed to this statement. He's saying, I'm radically and utterly committed to those of you who trust in me. I'm radically and utterly committed to you, so much so that there is not a, a higher priority in my life than to bringing you home with me to my Father so that we can sit at his banqueting table. Nothing means more important Nothing matters more to me than that. So I, that's, that's what I pulled out of that statement. He's that committed to us. <clears throat> then he goes on and he talks about what he's ready to do to make sure that he gets it done. Again, look at verse 25. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then he ends, period. And then they go out and sing a hymn, and they're just out on the Mount of Olives. Now, to us as casual readers in 2021, that might not really mean anything. You think, oh, okay, so he says that, they're having a Passover meal, and then he just ends, and they leave. But what I've discovered is that if he would, when he did that, and they're having this Passover meal, and he says, I'm not going to do this again until I drink it anew with you. And he has the bread and he has the cup. And then he just ends it. And then he leaves. That would have absolutely flabbergasted the disciples. They would have sat there and been like, wait a second. What just happened? And the reason is, is because typically when you have a Passover meal, or what you would do is the Passover meal was celebrated annually. And it as you guys know, it was uh, a representation of when God delivered the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, and he had told them, hey, I want you to celebrate this every year, and you're going to have a Passover meal to recognize you being delivered out of Egypt. There were typically three parts to that meal. The first part was you had the unleavened bread. And the unleavened, it was unleavened, which, which was a reminder that they had to rush out of Egypt and they couldn't wait around for the bread, so they couldn't wait around for the bread to rise. So that's why it was unleavened, it was symbolic of them rushing out and getting out quickly. It was known as the bread of affliction. And then they had the wine. Clearly they weren't assembly of God, but they had the wine. And they would have four cups or it would be one cup that would be passed around four times. And the reason that it was passed around four times is that it represented the four promises that God made in Exodus 6. Those promises are, I will bring you out, I will rid you of your bondage, I will pay your redemption price, and I will take you away to be my people. So if you're hanging out with Jesus and you're celebrating the Passover meal, which is what they're doing, and you're served some unleavened bread, and then he passes the cup around, and you think about the promises, and then Jesus ends it, and he says, okay, we're done, I'm going to leave now. You're sitting there thinking, what about the main course? We're supposed to have a meal. I'm really hungry. When we read it as 21st century people, we can miss out on this. The main course was obviously the lamb. And according to the instructions that were given to the Israelites when they were delivered from Egypt, God was going to send his angel of judgment, and the angel of judgment was going 
to come and judge everybody, every single person, good, bad, and different, didn't matter you know, what your religion was, didn't matter if you'd done anything good or bad, and, and the only way to get out of the angel of judgment coming to judge you, as kids like to say, they just judge me, I'm a youth pastor, you know, that's, what, that's the language they say. The only way to get out of that was to take this lamb, you were to slaughter it, you were to, t- you were to roast it, you were going to eat it as a meal, and you were going to take the blood, and you were going to put it above, across your door, and when the angel of judgment, or the angel of death, or whatever you want to call him, came, he would see that as a marker, and it would, and literally, as death was coming to judge you, and death was coming to to take you away, it would see that, and then death would pass over you. Oh, man, I'm starting to get weepy. <sighs> hate it when that happens. All right, so I, I read a, I, I think it was either in a sermon or or. I heard, or a book that I read, I can't remember. I think, I, think it was, I think it was David Wilkerson that said this, but he talked about what it must have been like on that night, the first night of the Passover, where you've been instructed to go through these steps. You're going to eat the unleavened bread. You're going to have the wine. You're going to roast this lamb, and you're going to take it and put the blood across the door. And, and he talked about what maybe different people might have been feeling through that night. And, and there were probably people there that were full of faith and had complete trust in God and knew that the steps that he had given them were going to provide a deliverance from death for them. And maybe they sat around in their meal and as a family they ate that and they had full confidence um, knowing that they were going to be okay in the morning and that they slept well that night and they enjoyed communion together. But that probably wasn't everybody. I think. I mean, if you had just been in Egypt and you had seen all these plagues that had just happened, that's a, that's a level of crazy that I've never experienced in my life. So you see all these things that, that happen and, and you know that the angel of judgment is coming for you that night. Even if you're, even if you're going through those steps and you're, you're eating the bread and you're drinking the wine and you roast the lamb and you slaughter it and you put the blood on the door, you might have been sitting there at dinner still terrified. You might have sat there and, and said, what if... What if what if the angel comes and takes my son? Like, what if this doesn't work, you know? And even though you had those feelings, it didn't stop the deliverance that actually happened. And I think that for us, many times we might not feel the right way about things, but it doesn't stop the blood of Jesus from working in your life, no matter how you feel about it. Whether you sit there and have dinner and you have full confidence in the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for you, or maybe you're having a bad day and you've experienced some tough things in your life and, and, and your faith starts getting wayward and, and you feel terrible about it. When you put your faith in that provision, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. And I like that because I'm a man and I, don't, I try not to live in my feelings. That's a good thing. So, all right. Um, like I said, I think it can be really easy for us to skip over this part, the part of the lamb being the main course. But when Jesus was hanging out with his disciples that night, I think one of the reasons that, that the disciples were completely freaked out by everything that was just, that was just happening is they had, <clears throat> I'm, I'm assuming most of them are in their, you know, 20s or 30s. So that's probably a little bit younger than me. That means that they've celebrated the Passover meal 
20 or 30 times in their life. Like this is, they know what to expect. They're walking into this. They know how this is going to play out. And for the first time ever, they walk into a Passover meal and Jesus completely flips the entire thing on its head and he does everything different. Because when Jesus had this Passover meal with them and he took the bread, what was typically said when you, when, when you would take the bread was this, is, this bread is the affliction of our fathers. And when, you would, when Jesus took it that night, Jesus said, this bread is my affliction and it's, and it's my body. That's a very different statement. So you're sitting there having this Passover meal and you think it's going to go one way and then Jesus takes it and he says, no, this isn't about your fathers and their deliverance. This is about me. You'd be like, wow. And then he takes the cup. They would typically say, this, is, this cup is a covenant and this is God's redemption. Jesus took the cup that night and he said, no, no, no. This cup is a cup of my redemption. So Jesus has Passover with his disciples and he changes what was said. That would freak them out. And what you need to see is that there were very specific instructions about how the Passover was supposed to take place. I think it's in Exodus 12, 14. God said, when you celebrate the Passover meal, don't change it. You're supposed to do it this way and it's always a symbolic thing For you to remember how this played out. But you're not allowed to change it. So Jesus comes in and he changes it. Do you realize what that means? That is Jesus saying, listen, I know that you had some very specific instructions on how this was supposed to come. They came from the boss. But because I am the boss, but because I gave the original instructions, I'm changing them. You can't change the instructions unless you're the boss. Schaefer tries to do it all the time. Never works out for him. He's not the boss. Comes back to bite him in the rear end. It's Jesus Jesus claiming to be God. I remember when I was um, a younger, younger man and YouTube just came out. Um, I, you know, got lost in the depths of YouTube, probably just like some of you have many times. And uh, I think it was like, maybe 2007, 2008, I mean, a long time ago, I'm really young, and I loved uh, going and watching debates. You know, Christians debating atheists um, were some of my favorites. And then sometimes I would watch uh, Muslims debate Christians, or sometimes I would watch a a Muslim guy give a lecture, and then there would be a QA and a in the audience. And I remember watching this one lecture uh, from this guy that was a Muslim, apologist. And I didn't know much back then. Maybe I still don't know much today. But I remember this man came up uh, to ask the apologist, the Muslim apologist, a question. And basically he said, you know, what do you do with the fact that Jesus claimed to be God? And if you know much about the Muslim religion, they obviously recognize Jesus as a great prophet, really good dude, um, but not God the Son. Right, that's, you know, that's where they draw the line. So what do you do about the fact that Jesus claimed to be God the Son? And the Muslim guy responded to him and said, you go show me one place in your Bible where Jesus claims to be God, where he says, I am God. And, you know, as like a, I don't know how old I was back then, but I'm really young. I'm not near as studied or learned then as I am now, not that I am now. But I remember it kind of shook me a little bit. 
Because, you know, he went on to talk about, well, there's this scripture where Paul says he's the son of God. Yes, that's Paul. That's not Jesus. And he would point to all these other things. You go show me where Jesus flat out says, I am God. And it rocked my world for a little bit. And then I started really learning how to read between the lines. And when you really read the Bible and you learn how to put two and two together, Jesus claimed to be God all the time. And this is just one example for him to come down and say, listen, I know that you guys thought this is how the Passover meal is supposed to go. I know you've been given specific instructions from God Almighty, but I'm changing the instructions. And the reason I can change the instructions is because I am God. It was a divine claim. So it's, it's in there. So if you're, you know, a little 19-year-old living on uh, YouTube, just rest in that. I've been there before. <laughs> so he changed what was said at the Passover meal. Then he changed what was served. So they go through this, and now they're expecting the lamb, and Jesus says, listen, I know you think that there's supposed to be a lamb on the table. The lamb is not on the table the lamb is at the table. And it's completely, completely a different thing. Completely, completely rocked their world. So when Jesus said, back to verse 25, I have it here. Truly, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus was coming and he's saying, I'm doing this. My highest priority in my life is bringing you home to my Father. That is my plan of salvation for you. It's a, it's a big deal. So um, I want to look at real quick. Um, I know that there's a lot of like sacrificial type language in this. I've <clears throat> talked to some, I've got a lot of friends that aren't, that aren't Christians or that aren't believers, and I, I like that. I like engaging in a, in a, constructive discussion that is, you know, I try to do it out of a position of love, just like I talk to my parents. <laughs> but, um, but I've heard some people say, you know what, I, one of my problems with God and one of my problems with the God of the Bible is there's all this talk of sacrificial language. You know, I mean, I think Richard Dawkins, if you know who he is, a, just a atheist guy that talks about why would I want to believe in a, a bloodthirsty God that it needs appeasing by, by having uh, a sacrifice and blood slain that's just so primitive, that's so old-fashioned. We live in 2021. I, I don't believe in any of that. We should be, we should be on that. They, you know, I remember one of them referenced a, a Greek mythology story, Agamemnon, where he... <clears throat> was on his way to Troy to try to defeat Troy, and he sacrificed his daughter to try to appease the gods, to try to earn favor with the gods. And so people can misinterpret this type of sacrifice to say, oh, why does there need to be a sacrifice to appease a god? Well, I, I have two things I'd like to share or think. Um, when Jesus had this moment, and there were those ancient religions <clears throat> where you would try to sacrifice something that was costly to you, that had value to you, and you would bring it before that God. And if it cost enough, then that God was supposed to have favor upon you. Um, I believe Jesus was repudiating all those religions when Jesus changed and said, no, I don't come 
demanding a sacrifice from you. I come providing a sacrifice for you. It's a much different thing, demanding as opposed to providing. So I would, first I would say Jesus comes providing that sacrifice, not demanding. Second, if you say that you believe in a God that doesn't demand payment for sin, I would tell you that you believe in a God who it costs nothing to love you. Nothing. I meet people all the time. They struggle with this sacrifice thing. I just want to believe in a God of love. But if there is no payment for sin, there is no cost. And how real is that love if it costs nothing? The God of the Bible is a much different, much different thing. And he loves you so much that he did provide the sacrifice. Okay, so that's uh, first, first amen statement. The second one. Before I share the second one, um, I want to share a story. A few, m- m- ten years ago maybe, I got suckered into going on this trip. And it was a trip where <clears throat> it was, you know, it was like a men's spiritual go, you know, go hang out in the woods and talk about the Lord and do stuff. You know, man camp. It's like, awesome. Sounds like fun. Danny Cox suckered me into it. And he, what he did was he said, listen, we're going to go to Colorado and we're going to hike mountains and we're going to peak, go to the peak of a summit and we're going to uh, rappel off cliffs and we're going to you know, build fires. We're going to be men. And, you know, I'm not much of an outdoorsman, but I was like, I'm in. All right, let's do it. So I go to Colorado, and I do this, and I'm, you know, I get excited about doing some things that I had never done before in my life. But we get up there, and I realized he was a little deceptive on how he sold it to me. Because we go, and we do all these activities. We repel walls. We climb mountains. But you do those things... So that afterwards, you can sit around and talk about how you feel about it. Yuck! That's miserable. It's almost as miserable as having to public speak. It's terrible. Right? And you know, so you do an activity, and then you'd all sit around a campfire. So, Shaler, when you were on the trail today, and you started off as a leader of the pack, and then at some point, you fell behind. How did that make you feel? You're like, God, I mean, seriously? Come on, man. I, anyway, so one of the days we went rappelling off a cliff. And um, so I've, I've never, it's actually the only time I've rappelled off a really steep cliff in my life. I mean, they told me that that was going to happen. I'd be like, well, that, that's really cool. But when you get to the point where you're actually standing on top of the cliff, <clears throat> and you look down the cliff, you start feeling a little different about it. I got really nervous, and, excuse me, they, they, you know, you get in a harness, you put on a helmet, you do, you do all the, the safety stuff. And from what I remember, it's been like 10 years ago, they had like, just to make you feel safe, they had a rope, and then they even like had a backup rope. And so we go through all of this stuff, and I, I rappelled down this cliff. And then we had our kumbaya moment afterwards, 
And they said, okay, tell us how that made you feel. And I actually had an answer for them, which kind of surprised me. And I realized that I was, I was incredibly nervous. I was terrified out of my mind. I, I felt a real sense of fear. I'd never done it before. And then they say, why? So you have to dig even dirt deeper into your feelings. And I realized that, you know, it wasn't that I didn't have faith in the rope. That I did, it's not that I didn't think the rope was going to snap. I, I, I didn't think that was going to happen. I knew that the rope was snugly secured to a tree on the top. Like I, it's not that I didn't have faith in that. It's not that I didn't have faith in the harness. It's not, I mean, I, tr- I literally, I really, I trusted every measure of safety that you put in place. So why was I so fearful? And I realized <clears throat> that it wasn't because I didn't trust everything else. It was because I didn't trust myself. And I thought, you know what? If this goes badly today, it's going to be my fault. Uh, my hands are going to be sweaty, and I'm going to be the one that lets go of the rope behind me. Or I'm going to, you know, repel, and I'm going to be the one that puts my foot in the wrong place. And I will be the one that crashes into the side of the mountain. It's going to be my fault. So <clears throat> I realized that it's. I, I, I have an issue trusting myself. So, I want to continue uh, on uh, the second amen statement, the second truly I tell you statement. Can you pull up verse 27? So, knowing that I have an issue trusting myself, knowing that I have an issue being scared of screwing things up in my life, I read this, you will fall away from me. Goodness gracious. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Keep going. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into, into Galilee. Keep going. Peter declared, even if, I, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. When I read that first amen statement where God says there is nothing that's going to stand in the way of me bringing you home to me, to my Father. It is the highest priority in my life. And then I look at the second one and I see that it is said right after Jesus calls them out on their failures. You guys will disown me. Here's why I want to put those things together, the first one and the second one. Because the second statement, basically he's saying, listen, pay attention. I know that you are going to let me down. I know that you are going to fail. I know that you're going to disown me. But when you put it with the first, basically it's saying, my plan is so great for your salvation that I've already accounted for the fact that you're going to screw up. I've already accounted for the fact that you're going to fail. I've already accounted for the fact that you are going to disown me, and it's not going to change my plan for you. I love that. So 
let me just end with end with this. <clears throat> Here's here. Let me, I'll end with a word of. I hope this is encouragement. Try to encourage us today. I'm not an evangelical humanist, but I do like encouragement every once in a while. Um, <clears throat> the way that I see this play out, I cannot help but think of Peter. He goes through these two statements. He sees them back to back. You know how, do you, do you ever have uh, a time where you engage your senses, you know, a smell or a sound or something, and it immediately transports you back to a time 10, 15, 20 years ago? You know what I'm talking about? Like, you maybe haven't thought of something in, in 20 years, and then you hear a certain sound or you have a certain smell, or, and it just immediately you're back there. An example for me is every time I, I smell roasted almonds, <laughs> It, I, I was in the minor leagues. I remember it immediately takes me back to Aberdeen, Maryland at Ripken Stadium in the New York Penn League where they roasted almonds up on the concourse and that smell went down on the field. I mean, it's just, I, I can walk into the state fair and smell roasted almonds and I'm in Aberdeen, Maryland, just like that. Or like you hear a certain piece of music. I remember um, uh, listening to John Williams and um, there, you know, I'm a, movie score nerd. I love John Williams. And I remember listening to the soundtrack of Hook. And he used a certain chord that I'd heard before. And it immediately transported me back to sitting upstairs in my loft, playing video games, staying up way too late at night, listening to my dad arrange music using the same chord. Just, just like that. John Williams was ripping off my dad. No, just kidding. My dad was ripping off John Williams. <laughs> and I think he'd admit to that, you know. It's, he, John Williams ain't ripping off my dad, that's for sure. But just a certain sound can take you back to this moment, and you can relive this moment. It's just, it's crazy. It's something you haven't thought of in 10 or 15 years. I think of Peter, and I think about the fact that Jesus sat there and told him, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. Well, back then, from what I understand, they didn't have alarm clocks. So I've had this thought that when you're Peter and you're traveling around and you're staying in a city, you're staying at an inn or you're wherever, one of the first things that you're going to hear every morning is that stupid rooster. And what do you think he thought of every single time for the rest of his life when he heard a rooster crow? Every single time. I bet it took him exactly right back to this moment. And Peter, the guy that was the rock that the church was built, like we're here because of him. And yeah, Jesus could have used somebody else, but he didn't. We're here because of him. And I just can't help but think, Peter woke up every single morning having to face the gravity of his failures. And I know that there's a lot of us that have that same problem. <clears throat> but when I look at Peter, and I look at him going on to start the church, and I look at this man being someone that's a hero of the faith, that really went on to do great things, I just can't help but think he found a way to get over that. He knew that Jesus said, listen, I know you're going to let me down. I know that you're going to screw things up, 
And you might even have to face the gravity of that every day for the rest of your life. But I have to think the reason that he got past that and was able to go on and do so many awesome things was because he didn't just look at that second amen statement. He looked at the first that said, you know what, as big of a screw-up as I am, as much as I have to face this every day in my life, and I know you guys all have roosters crowing in your life that love to remind you of your failures, you cannot forget that Jesus took that into account, and he knows that, and his plan of salvation includes that, and that you are still on a journey home to be with Jesus and his Father. And I just think that that's something that we can rest in. I just think that that's something that we can let go of some of the things that are our hurts and our hangups and be reminded that Jesus has a plan and you're not good enough to screw up his plan.